How do you take down a criminal network hidden in the shadows? I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. The journalists working to expose the darkest corners of the internet. That's your playroom floor. That's your baby's clothes. That's my house. The police who hunt down online predators. Did we create the environment that they're using? No, we didn't. We didn't make it. They made it. Hunting Warhead. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC podcast about the messiness of human connection. Our brand new season is available now, featuring deeply personal stories, like a man who learns all about love while imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay. Two brothers stuck sharing a room again as adults. And a note slipped into the back pocket of someone's jeans that leads to a surprising late-night encounter. Subscribe at cbc.ca slash loveme or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to season three, available now. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney. You've probably seen those posters in bars and taverns not to drink if you're pregnant. They're intended to prevent fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, a devastating diagnosis that comes with learning disabilities, trouble getting organized, trouble regulating emotions, and substance use. And FASD is incurable, which explains the push to prevent it. It's also surprisingly common, especially among kids in the child welfare system and among those adopted from Russia and elsewhere. All told, up to a million and a half Canadians have FASD, making it far more common than autism spectrum disorder, and yet it's far less understood. Some of the people you'll hear today think FASD gets less respect and fewer resources than almost any other developmental disability. Come on in. I'm Lori. This is Phoenix. One woman who's desperate for understanding and some help is Lori White. Lori's son, Richie, is 17 and has FASD. So does her 13-year-old daughter, Carly. Lori and a former partner adopted both kids. Carly was diagnosed quickly with FASD. Richie wasn't diagnosed until grade one. So I was thinking we could just sit in here. Is that... Recently, White Coat Black Art producer Jeff Goods traveled to Guelph, just west of Toronto, to speak with Lori. She says Richie was diagnosed 11 years ago at the age of six and was one of the first kids to be assessed for FASD in the Guelph area. And we would fill in a whole bunch of paperwork and a whole bunch of questionnaires. And then we went and he met with the developmental pediatrician and they did the physical measurements that go along with a diagnosis. And then it was, here you go, here's your diagnosis, see you later, bye. (laughs) Pretty much. There wasn't really any follow-up. There wasn't like we could go into an early intervention program. It's not like we could get him involved in anything that was specific to fetal alcohol. Absolutely nothing was available. So he's in grade one? Yeah. And meanwhile, he's still having troubles at school. Major troubles. Basically, any transition, he would sit in the middle of the carpet and scream. He wasn't able to dress himself by himself to get outside. Every recess was a struggle. And the school really, you know, pushed that he needed to do those things by himself. So he would have 
full meltdowns on a regular basis because he couldn't do it. Yeah, he was in the principal's office repeatedly. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty constant. And we're talking grade one and two. And the- grade, oh, yeah, kindergarten grade one. Yeah, yeah. The behaviors that got Richie into trouble are symptoms of FASD and are caused by the brain damage that occurs with prenatal exposure to alcohol. But, like many other teachers, the ones who schooled Richie chalked up those behaviors to a bad attitude. Meanwhile, Richie was showing another typical symptom of FASD, delayed social development. He had difficulty reading signals from his classmates, which meant he was often lonely. All Richie ever wants is friends. And he was bullied a lot. He was told to do things that were completely inappropriate, but because he wanted friends, he would do it. And he believed that these kids were his friends, and he would do anything they asked him to do. So me trying to curb that meant me keeping him from his friends. There was no programs for him to go to with other kids with fetal alcohol. He was not allowed into programs that were for other kids with developmental disabilities because fetal alcohol wasn't considered a developmental disability, and it often still isn't at this point. So we had very few options. So yeah, his behavior increased. He, He would take off, and I wouldn't be able to find him, and that meant calling the police. More often than not, the police were not all that helpful. They would find him, but he would often escalate because of how the police um, approached him. One factor in all of this is that Richie looks older than he is. Mm -hmm. He's a big boy. So when he was 11, he looked about 14. People would expect things from him that he was totally incapable of doing because he may have been 11, but developmentally he would have been seven, sometimes five, and not able to follow multiple, multiple step directions. So if you come upon a police officer who's been looking for you and they tell you to stop and they tell you to sit down or answer a whole bunch of questions, he can't do that. So then they would perceive that as being defiant and uncooperative. They would become more threatening. He would become more threatening because he was scared. And that never went well. That's not easy. And No. <laughs> Traumatic is a really accurate word for everybody. Lori says Um, Richie had the mind of a preteen and the body the size of an emerging adult. That mismatch came to a head one day when Richie was 11. He wanted to go and play, so he took his Nerf gun with him. He took his favorite toy, an orange Nerf gun made of foam, to play with some friends at a nearby apartment complex. I followed along and went looking for him and couldn't find him. So I went back home and went out in the car and drove to the few places in the neighborhood where he typically would go and was returning to the my street having not found him and noticed that there were two police cars that pulled into another end of my street and I kind of got a bit of a jump in my stomach drove home and pulled into my driveway to turn and look and see him about six houses away and the two police cars pull up one behind him one in front of him, both officers jumping out of their cars and screaming at him to drop the gun. I had no idea what was going on. He had no idea what was going on. And unbeknownst to us, what had happened is that 
He had been seen walking. Uh, he's mixed race. He was wearing a black winter coat and someone had called the police reporting a black guy with a black coat with a gun. So that's what the police were responding to. It was a Nerf gun that was orange. It didn't even remotely look like a real gun, but they couldn't see the gun because it was cold and he had pulled his arm up into the sleeve. So immediately, with good intent, they're, they're yelling at him to, to drop the gun. He can't understand what they're saying to him because they're speaking so fast and they're escalated. He finally realizes that they're asking about the gun and he shows them that it's a Nerf gun. They continue to yell at him and the officer from behind rushed through and took the Nerf gun, ripped it out of his hands. And Richie escalated and totally lost it. Within seconds, he was on the ground with two officers on top of him, pinned and then um, forcefully taken to the back of their car, um, you know, hands and feet on the car and they were standing on his feet and he was screaming and I was right there. I was trying to explain to them what was going on. They basically threatened me with interference, which I understand, but at the same time, they were hurting my child. That ended in him being handcuffed and feet bound in the back of a police car and being taken to the, to the emergency department, remembering that he's 11. And I followed to the emergency department and I told the sergeant that if the police de-escalated, that he would de-escalate. And that by the time they got to the hospital, he would be calm and he would probably get out of the car and do whatever they asked him to do. And that's exactly what happened. By the time he got to the hospital, he got out of the police car, he got up onto the gurney. They soon removed the handcuffs in the ER. We sat and waited. And when the doctor finally came around to see him and asked what had happened, he said that two boys had said very mean and things to him and had hurt his heart and that he had gone for a walk to try to help himself feel better and was coming home. The doctor asked him if anything hurt and he said, only my heart and proceeded to break down and cry. Needless to say, we were quickly released and sent home. That crisis with Richie had passed, but it left Lori with a sinking feeling neither the police nor the doctor had done anything to help her son. Well, and we shouldn't have been at the hospital in the first place, right? If, if it, it could have been handled very differently in many different ways, and that's not the only instance of that happening. I think he has been taken to the hospital by police. My estimate is five or six times, and... All of those times, except for one, we were discharged and released within three hours. Once he's calm, he's calm and he's polite and respectful and funny. And that's what the doctors would see. And I wouldn't want him to stay in the hospital because I knew that there was nothing that they could do for him anyways. What did Richie need at that point from the medical world? <laughs> it's kind of hard to say what someone needs when you have no idea of ever experiencing 
what that would have been. In meetings, like in case meetings and things like that, the number of times that I've been asked if you had a magic wand or if you could have one thing, what would it be? And I finally said to people, that's a useless question because you're never, ever going to be able to give it to me. So why keep asking something that is never going to exist? And it, it's not a feasible thing. And it's always the same answer, support. Support from people who understand. Around the time our producer Jeff Goods met with Lori, she had just placed Richie in a home that provides intense one-on-one treatment for teens with behavioral issues. Since then, Lori says Richie has had a rough few months. He's lonely and sometimes leaves the residence seeking friends. He often spends nights on the street. Lori says he's gotten severe frostbite on his toes. We asked to speak with Richie, but he declined. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, the challenge Lori White faces raising a son with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD. As Lori explained, Richie's behavior has increasingly brought him to the attention of police. Neither they nor the doctors at the local hospital ER have given Lori much advice on how to help him. That's not unusual. Few frontline professionals in healthcare or in social services specialize in FASD. Hi, my name is Anna Hanlon-Dearman. I'm the medical director of the Manitoba FASD Centre and Network here in beautiful Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's not surprising that Winnipeg, Manitoba would boast one of Canada's leading experts. Manitoba is one of Canada's leaders in research and treatment of FASD. What do we in the medical community need to do better to manage and support patients with FASD? A number of things, actually. I think that, number one, we need to recognize it. When we see some of the signs of FASD, things like learning difficulties or significant intellectual disabilities. We may see trouble regulating our behaviors, our attention, our focus, trouble with memory, trouble applying what we know to day-to-day situations. And sometimes people see those things as, you know, intentional behaviors, like we may see people apply terms like, you know, a person is struggling and it seems intentional, but it really isn't intentional. They really are just struggling to kind of make sense of, of what the environment is demanding of them. Those are the kind of things in the right context and the right context, of course, is a history of prenatal alcohol exposure. When we know that and when we see that there are some difficulties that that individual is experiencing, I think we should try and think about FASD and think if that's the right direction for us to go in in our conversation with the family. To put it in in kind of plain and simple terms, a lot of people think they do things because or they fail to do things because they won't, when in fact it's because they can't. Absolutely. And you see that in kids all the time and and all kinds of adjectives get applied. But really, you know, if we can adapt the environment a little bit better and make it work better for a child, you end up not only making it better for that particular child, but everybody else in the classroom. And how much of an impact does early intervention have on outcomes of people with FASD? Yeah, it's tremendous. We've been able to show that when we can get kids um, the right supports early, when we can get the supports involved in their school as they transition to school and right through the school age, that they stay in school longer, they finish school, they're more successful in school. We have kids doing all kinds of really great things. Is there a reluctance to diagnose or seek diagnosis because at least in, in some people's minds there's a stigma 
surrounding yeah. FASD. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we have to really work hard as a community to overcome that stigma. You know, it's tough for any parent to think that something that they may have done could have resulted in things that are causing problems Mm. for their children. But if we take it a step outside of that, it's not just the parent. The parent exists in the context of their community. And no woman drinks alcohol to hurt her baby. They drink for lots of different reasons mental health difficulties or because they're really struggling with violence or poverty or all kinds of things in the environment, they may also drink because there's a culture of drinking. And so I think some of those things, it's really up to us as a community to address and really support women so that they have healthy pregnancies. What can be done to help kids and then adolescents and adults who have this condition? Yeah. People need the support of therapists like speech and language therapists or occupational therapists. They need educational supports, daily living skills. It really depends on what they specifically need. Many people are independent, but many people also need some specific supports in those areas. And uh, they need help to be protected from entering the criminal justice system, don't they? Yeah, that that unfortunately happens. Um, So yes, they do need that kind of support if that's part of what they're struggling with. What would be the biggest thing you wish you had? You either knew through research the biggest gap that you, you think really needs to be overcome that would make your job easier and make it easier for people with FASD? Honestly, I think it would be that as a community, we embrace FASD. We embrace women who are pregnant and the families who have kids with FASD, and we make it easier for them to access health care resources and, and access the educational supports and community supports that they need. So when they come to our clinic, they feel comfortable. And when they go, they feel like they've left with the answers to the questions that they have. Dr. Anna hanlon Dearman from Winnipeg says she sees lots of patients with FASD who do well as adults if they get the kind of support they need. She acknowledges that there's a lack of understanding about the condition among people in healthcare, education, and in social services. No one understands the challenges for people with FASD better than Miles Himmelreich. As a teenager, Miles went through much the same struggles as Lori White's son, Richie. But Miles, now in his 30s, has found ways to cope successfully with FASD. He consults on the condition and gives motivational speeches. He's happily married and is dad to a young daughter named Alexandra. Miles Himmelreich, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you. Um, so what did you think of Lori White's story about her son, Richie? Unfortunately, that is not a uncommon story of a mother feeling uh, lost and alone and seeing their child who is also feeling lost and alone and feeling helpless on how to help their child. Miles, what do you think is the biggest thing or things that people misunderstand about those who have FASD? We see FASD and we see this behavior and we jump to its bad behavior and then we jump to straight punishment. So in school, it was... I was lazy, I wasn't trying, I didn't care, and then I would get detention when in actuality what was happening was I maybe was struggling with the sensory issues. It was too bright, it was too loud, there was too much going on, as well as my uh, struggles with processing. So being able to take information, remember it, interpret it, and then deliver it later on, 
was something that's very difficult for me. So people would see and go, oh, he's not trying. Where in actuality, we're trying harder than people even know. Because when you have FASD, you know, some of the health things and some of the physical things that you're dealing with are things such as inability to be able to sleep. If I can't sleep, how can I, you know, wake up and function like everybody else who Mm. did sleep? but yet I'm held to the same expectations as everybody else. How much of what you heard of Lori White talking about Richie is similar to the experiences you've had in your life? Quite a bit. Um, One of the biggest things that we see in here and I experienced myself was that misunderstanding of the developmental versus chronological age, um, how her son was 11 but looked older, right? And so that was very difficult, as you can hear from what she was saying, that people around, whether it was school or um, law enforcement, whatever it was, were judging him at a higher level than where he should be supported and understood. And I experienced that myself where you know, developmentally, I was seven, but chronologically, I was, you know, 14, 15. And that would continue on until my mid to later 20s, where things started to kind of catch up a bit. But if you think about all those years, that's a long time to go 26, 27 years being developmentally quite a bit lower than you are chronologically, but yet held to those same expectations and supposed to act the same way as everybody else that is developmentally ahead of you. So it would be like getting upset at a baby that isn't walking and talking Hmm. when they're three months old because you're looking at these kids that are four. You know, it's not it's not that they're they're not trying and don't want to. It's that where they're at, they can't. Uh, Richie's mom uh, uh, said that that Richie uh, was lonely, still is. Did you ever feel that way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, going through school, not being able to meet the expectations of teachers and students. And so you don't fit in. So you feel lonely there. And then I did what many people do, where all of a sudden there was this crowd of people that said, hey, hang out with us. You don't have to be alone. All you have to do is, you know, have drugs and alcohol. And so I felt, oh, wow, I'm accepted finally. After all these years of not being good enough and not being accepted, these people accept me. And so then I thought, oh, well, good. Yay. I, I have some people that care about me, accept me. But I quickly realized that wasn't true. And so, again, now I'm all alone, right? And so it was a very lonely journey because people don't understand you. They don't accept you. You don't understand yourself, so you don't accept yourself. And so it took a while for me to catch up developmentally as well as emotionally and maturity-wise to know, okay, I deserve better and I can do better, you know, not to listen to those people around me that were negative, but start to listen and see those things that were positive around me and focus on those. Still, you seem incredibly high-functioning. That has to give parents like Lori White a lot of hope. How did you get there? One of the greatest things that my parents taught me was in our home, there was a lot of children that had varying disabilities, and we would focus on our ability not our disability. So it was a matter of focusing on the things you could do rather than the things you couldn't do or you're told that you couldn't do. 
And so for me, I have the you know strength of being able to explain FASD in a different way that will connect with you know a, a young child with FASD all the way up to a psychologist, therapist, doctor. And so that's where my focus is, is that's what I'm good at, right? I really believe that if we can find where the individual's strengths are, we focus on that. You know, um, one of the things that that mother was sharing about her child was how good and kind and, and caring they were. Right. And, and that's that's who the child is. Right. Yeah. It's not the child that's doing this or that or reacting this certain way. Of course, you're going to react a certain way when you're not able to understand what's going on. And the only thing you have been told is you're weird, you're different and nobody wants to be your friend. That makes it very difficult to fit into society to be accepted. So I think it's really important for parents and caregivers to be the ones that see and focus on that individual's strength and help build them up. Because unfortunately, with the lack of information and stigma out there, there's going to be a lot of people that will be tearing those individuals down. If you could say something to Richie right now and other kids like him, what would you say? You have to see that those people around you, like your mother and you know people like that that care about you, they're the ones that are going to be your safe place, that they're the ones that, you know, you need to listen to when, you know, you feel like people don't care about you and don't love you. Listen to those ones that are there that do love you and know that as someone that lives with FASD, I can, you know, relate to how hard it is every day that you're trying and that you're you're doing everything you can and people are looking at you saying you're not trying hard enough, you know, and I just want to say that you are. You are trying hard enough and that you are doing the best that you can do and that's all anyone can ever ask. And so I use the acronym for FASD not just as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but as a way that I choose to live my life and that is through F is for faith, A is for ability, S is for strength, and D is for determination. And I feel if you can live your life through that, you'll find where you fit in this world. You'll find your purpose because everybody has a purpose. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. Thank you for the opportunity. Not everyone with FASD can accomplish what Miles has, and he works hard at it every day. Just knowing he's out there trying to make things easier for teens like Richie gives me a lot of hope. That's our show for this week. Now head over to our website where you can see an animated video of Miles Himmelreich describing what it's like to have FASD. That's at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. If you want to share your experiences with FASD, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD, and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook. Whitecoat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods with help from Sujata Berry, our senior producer Donna Dingwall, and digital producers Ruby Buiza and Jonathan Orr. Special shout-outs to Suzanne Dufresne in Winnipeg and Rob Polson in Kamloops for studio help. And extra special thanks to Ben Shannon for creating the amazing animated video on our website. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.